Hmm. This is a hard introduction to make. A good friend, a special soul has passed over. I'm grieving over the loss of my dear brother, Barry Marcus. I know, who in hell wants to listen to a sad guy in mourning, but bear with me here for a moment. I'm going to say my little piece and then let you decide for yourself what to make of Barry as we replay his Change the Story episode as a celebratory remembrance. So, my little piece. I think of Barry as an undeserved gift. Not just to me, but to all of us in the world who aspire to a life full of heart and empathy and good work. Barry was a bubbly, quirky, brilliant, loving, creative presence who came to the party with no hesitation, ready to share his songs and stories and his amazing layered images and laugh and cry and and laugh again. All I can say is what a privilege it has been to have had a friend like Barry ever in my life. Those of you who are listening who did not know Barry are probably thinking, hey, You know, the guy lost a good friend. He's going to hyperbolize a bit. But you folks who knew the man know what I'm saying doesn't come close to how cool the guy truly was. I think we are all attracted to people we think are doing life better than we are. And the thing that pulls us in is the thing that we most wish we could master, the sublime, just-out-of-reach touch that we most aspire to. This was certainly the case with my friend Barry. He was, of course, as cracked and flawed and inattentive as the rest of us, but what stood out with him in his relationship with life was his complete and total awe and love of the world he and the rest of us inhabited when he was with us. In this realm, He was not in any way a master tactician or strategic genius. He was rather an all-in heart and soul participant in whatever opportunity, obstacle, question, or mystery came his way. He was an over-the-top enthusiast and cheerleader for what was possible, for what was interesting or provocative, and most of all, what manifested love in the universe by... Love in the universe, I'm not talking about the woo thing, you know. I'm talking about the thing that he was best at without even thinking, which was wanting us, all of us, to be us with as much intensity and honesty and respect and compassion as possible, so much so that whoever was on the receiving end out there could not help but return the favor. So... We published Barry's episode called Creative Culture in May of 2020. In it, he shared the story of an amazing and successful arts-infused treatment program he created at a residential facility for severely mentally ill adolescent boys in California. As you listen, I'm sure you will catch a glimpse of the sparky, vital spirit all of us who knew him and loved him will sorely miss. Barry Marcus is clever, funny, and a good friend. He also personifies one of my favorite human characteristics. That's quirkiness. 
You never know what he's gonna do or say or sing for that matter. Duck goes quack, cow goes moo. I say hello, how do you do? You talk to me and I'll listen to you. Talking and it's squawking till our lips turn blue. Now, that's Barry singing the title tune from his CD of songs for kids. These days, he describes himself as a visual storyteller. Back in the 90s, when I met him, he was not only a prolific songwriter, but also a therapist and a director of children's mental health programs. Although the first spark in our friendship was through music, our enduring connection has been fueled by our mutual passion for exploring the kinds of questions that have sustained our life's work and given rise to this podcast. Namely, can the creative process be a potent force for healing and change? And if so... How do we do that really, really well? From the Center for the Study of Art and Community, this is Change the Story, Change the World. I'm Bill Cleveland. We're calling today's episode Creative Culture, and today's conversation with creative culture facilitator and advocate Barry Marcus took place during May of 2020. For myself in Alameda, California, and Barry on Bainbridge Island near Seattle, we were coming to the end of our third month living at the intersection of Six Feet and Sequesterville. Part One, Rhythms and Seasons. With your permission, I would like to ask you to recount a piece of your history, a focus of bringing creative process to bear on very difficult circumstances, particularly for young people that you were serving at the place called Families First. Would you be willing to talk about how it came about, how you came to it, and what happened? Well, can I give a little um, prelude to that that applies? You know, I was at the Sacramento Children's Home for 13 years prior to that. And um, because of my role as one of the directors holding the position of intake, and seeing how people translated what an intake summary looked like into their day-to-day residential care. These kids were 24 hours a day in the care. They, in both circumstances, the children's home and families first, these are kids that blew out of foster home, multiple five, seven foster homes or had very acute and dramatic means to be removed. They were in institutions And the people that work with them primarily, besides the clinical staff, are really the line staff, and they're called child care workers. And they would look at an intake summary, and they would see this description of a troubled child, most often behaviorally, because that's how children experience trauma, and they would define them by their deficits. So the first thing I did was I created a thing called Guess Who's Coming? Instead of saying, here's this broken down kid and that's it, I said, here's a profile of our newest guest. And at first they thought it was a joke, but I said, oh no, I want you to treat this child like a guest. So in essence, what I really knew was that these children could be relegated to the uh, garbage basket as soon as they entered the door or sometimes even before. I was recruited as a creative person. What I wanted to do is use the institutional setting as um, a community of creativity and use the children's lives and their brokenness as deep feelings to connect to a creative process that could 
allow them to be seen different and experienced different and seen themselves different. So what I'm hearing is that Families First was really a golden opportunity to integrate your ideas about using the creative process as a healing force for these kids. Um, I did some things at Children's Home, uh, as I said, the, the guess who's coming. But uh, the transition was the CEO of Families First said, I just want your creativity. You figure a way to do it. Now, I had done a song site called Our Stuff, Our Song, and it was helping children create their song individually, then bring it together as a group, and then bring it to a public, a community of parents, family, uh, uh, mental health associates, but also the outside community to give them a chance to give voice to their inner being as artists. I had a band learning their songs and I brought them all together to practice. And then the performance became a ritual and a rite of passage, which I always incorporated in all the work I did is that community, uh, living and breathing community and having rituals and rites of passage. Um, we had this amazing drumming thing with a Ghana drummer. And what the kids created was these chants and narratives with, um, we used plastic water bottles as drums and they were painted and adorned in various ways. And we had a public ceremony and it was really profound and deep and, and rich. Could you describe how creative culture manifested First of all, and also describe Families First, what its mission was, who its clients were. Well, Families First started out as a professional foster care program and kind of blossomed while I was there, growing into a more of a residential treatment program with foster care. A whole, it was a range of service program. But what fascinated me about it, as did Sacramento Children's Home, was it was its own community with its own values, its own uh, rhythms, its own kind of timing and seasons in the life of a child who lived there. Now, before I say anything more about that, who lived there? Again, these were kids in and out of places like Napa State Hospital. So they would get in a hospital for all kinds of, sometimes it was psychotic, but very often it was assaultive behavior that parents and other foster families thought they couldn't handle, or it was runaways. Now, an interesting aside about runaways, we learned in the 70s that girls, well, they were considered offenders only as teenagers. They wouldn't have been charged with crimes for what they did if they were adults. And the crime was they ran away. Well, we began finding out why girls were running away, and really it was early 70s. They were molested, and that was her only way of dealing with it. So these were kids that were used to their energies being coming and going, running, and having no sense of permanency. And the residential treatment home, particularly Families First, said, we're going to stick with this kid unless it gets really, really dangerous. And because we know the next step from us is an inpatient Napa State Hospital, a warehouse still. And we make a commitment to work with the child and when there was the family. But in the circle of having the community and the physical ground, 
I recognized the structure was, it was like in a Eureka kind of moment. We had individual kids working on their individual stuff. They lived in individual houses, up to 12 kids. So you had a child who was a member of a group. Not only were they a member of a group, they went to the on-campus school. And so they were a member of a class. But together they were all families first. This facility had many components to it. It had an educational component. These kids lived with each other. They, um, they had activities all day. They had counseling. Talk about how creative culture really meant that creative process was integrated into every aspect of their time in the facility. Culture is a very big and important word in this situation because it's this kind of inbred system of um, this is appropriate and this is not appropriate. And by the way, appropriate is a power word. Who determines appropriate? You know, I mean, there are conventions, but again, artists don't want to do anything appropriate. Um, But what I was trying to point to is regardless of whether you see the whole fabric or not as a child care worker dealing with a kid spitting at you, you're still in a culture. This is a culture. And we have the opportunity to both define it and refine it by looking for um, the creative juices. Because even as a mental health facility, the only way you solve problems is to be creative. The only way you connect with other people is to create that energy. So I was also asking staff to stand back a little and give themselves a chance to look at kids as creative. Eventually, uh, one of my favorite projects, and actually this is with Oprah, and we were able to have Oprah come and see them and say, you know, the difference between you and me isn't where I started, it's where I am now. And that happened to me. And the arts and expression leads me to healing. So I saw that as an opportunity to build creative culture where the individual does their work, but they can't do it independent of what the group is doing, be it the house or the school. Part two, release the hounds. So Barry, individual, group, house, school, is there a particular initiative or project that you feel really manifested, really connected at all these levels you just shared? Uh, the easiest thing to talk about is a book, which we did with a very famous artist named um, uh, Roy DeForest, The Secret of Dogmore Island. And what he did is he gave us cards, just little cards of outlines of what each chapter should be. So if you had chapter one in your class, you may have an idea, but your class or your house better buy it to fit the overall narrative that they're developing and it was group collaboration. And Bill, as you know, because you were part of it, it was very profound and deep and rich and complex. So in that circumstance, Roy DeForest created an outline, a visual outline in the beginning of a story. And then these groups of young people basically filled in the voids with their own images and their own um, narrative. Is that right? Yes. And how it, how it worked is... Very, you know, there were two sentences per uh, 
little card. I'm a very big believer in, in this is part of creative culture. And ha- having a goal and a process that comes to a conclusion where there is an artifact, whether it's a book, a song cycle, the Davis family mural, ceramic, there's something concrete that the whole the whole community can point to and say, we did that. And, the, and also, I did that meaning we did that. But I think Dogmore represents partnership. I brought in uh, working writers and artists of different kinds. And I introduced them as like the kids, and the kids were like them because they had deep feelings. They had a need to express them. And they used arts as an, a way to express their complex feelings. Complex fields. Uh, wow. In a complex environment, working together on a really complex project where you have different groups, classes, negotiating separate parts of this one evolving story. Yeah, it's, it sounds complicated. So what I think was very specifically embedded in the concept of creative culture, as I said, you can't create your chapter without your whole class. But your class can't rely on the whole chapter being either honored or related to what else is there without all the other chapters. By example, okay, so wait, for uh, structure, I hired five visual artists and five authors. The guy who wrote The Last Unicorn, Peter Beagle was one of them. Okay. So, but here's what happened. Let's start with chapter one. Class is getting near writing kind of a sense of a narrative. It's not written and solidified, but they got a sense of who Dr. Dogmar is and who Pep the Flea is and all these characters and where the narrative was heading. And one kid gets up and he goes, wait a minute, Barry, what are they going to do in chapter two? And how will we know how it ends? We don't want Pef, good example, we don't want Pef to get killed. You can't kill Pef. And I, I said to him, well, you know, you know, we don't know. But one way you might resolve that if you have an interest in how it moves along and how the whole thing is done is pick who, what, what chapter you're most concerned about. Are you most concerned right now about how it will be picked up from you right now? Yeah, yeah, what are they going to do? He says, well, you know what? Would you like to send an emissary or two into group two and make a presentation on what you've come up with and how you want them to know about who these characters are and why you love them? And 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 again, Bill, they chose two kids and they got up there and we had a class where even the most troubled kid was saying ideas and, and coming up, and when we left, I asked the kids in group one, are you satisfied? And do you, here's a key word, trust group two. Now, these are kids that don't trust nothing. And they left and said, we will leave it in their hands. And so we had these interlacing webs of people coming and going and kind of threading the story as it moved on. So they forged partnerships, working together and building the story. Together. How did the artists and writers figure in this mix? 
the writers would go into classes maybe six times, six weeks, and work with them to refine what it was. And from that, uh, we also had the artists come in and they would work with them to draw their ideas and integrate some of their art so that it became, again, a collaboration. It, you, you also collaborated with the artist in your class. And so styles came out. At this point, some of you listening may be wondering what all this festive collaboration produced. From what I understand, this is how the Dogmore story goes. Dogmore Island is, of course, an island of dogs. Lots of dogs, with big ones, little ones, skinny and thick, shaggy ones and short-haired, peppy and slow, all living together in relative harmony until a quest ensues to dig up an answer to a question that is desperately needed to address a problem. A mystery, actually, that needs to be solved, that must be solved, or chaos will ensue. Given the number of authors, over 50, and the number of pages, nearly 120, there are lots of surprising twists and turns and tangles in the labyrinthine search that unfolds. Ultimately, of course, all ends well for the dogs, and yes, even the fleas, who, by the way, figure prominently in the story's unlikely, though satisfying, conclusion. After hearing the Dogmore saga, I asked Barry how the real-world adventure that produced it ended up. The end was this big hoop-de-doo uh, ceremony, ritual, probably mm. more a ritual than a rite of passage, where the books were released, and uh, the media was there. We had the local media, and they were... Cr- one of the media came up to me and said, Barry, you didn't tell us we'd be crying. <laughs> so uh, when you say books released, you're saying that there was uh, an edition of the book yes. that was printed. Yeah. And so a, a couple questions. Number one is, big picture, what did you want to ha- have happen? And how did that turn out? Well, you know, okay, in an individual basis. I want each child to have a sense of self-worth in the project. That's simple. And to also be able to bridge that gap between I and we. And to be able to identify that my success is also made more rich by my, my group's success, which is also made more rich and complete by my community's success. And I wanted the community into internal from so I want all the childcare workers and all to celebrate and see what came of it. But I wanted the community of Davis. It's it Davis is a um, very fine uh, institution of learning, the University of uh, California Davis. I wanted them to go families first. These aren't the troublemakers. No, these are a source of richness, and that was important, really important. Oh, one one more important thing. I remember when we did the mural and we had the ceremony in public on the streets and several, many of the parents came and this woman came up and was hugging me. I didn't know her. And she was crying. She says, my son in all of his school never got congratulations for his work. I don't ever remember a teacher saying this is fine work. He was identified very early as learning disabled and and behaviorally disordered. And she said, you know, and she just was crying. I, I've never experienced this in my life. So that was equally important. Part three, 
Turning the Page on the Prussians. So at a certain point, you know, my understanding is, is that if this were to take, in essence, if this were to become a way of working at Families First rather than Barry's project, you needed a buy-in by everybody who was on staff. Is that something that you you felt evolve over time? Yes. The first and, and you know, primarily most important thing was that the CEO brought me in for that purpose. She was a very powerful personality, as you remember. And what she said went. So they expressed a great deal of excitement. I, I learned later, you better be excited if Evelyn tells you to be. But I think they gained some excitement. I, one of the things that it just came up again in my gut, when we did the drumming thing, there were five groups again, and it was a public performance. And the kids were coming apart the, the night before. And the, some of the child care, senior child care workers came to me and they said, you know, I don't know, you're putting too much pressure on these kids. I'm sorry. And, I, you know, maybe I just trusted myself. I said, I know those guys. They're okay. They're going to do it. But, and sometimes there was conflict. And I have to say, sometimes I think, in retrospect, I overstressed the creative parts and maybe needed to look more um, at the, the trouble it was to, to really serve these kids in difficult circumstances. So, so here's, here's a question. Go ahead. I remember very specifically your talking to me about how certain kids responded well to their access to making, to creating. Right, right. What do you think is going on with a young person with a history of chaos and in some cases violence when they encounter not just a little workshop, but an environment that is um, infused with this way of thinking about the world, with making and creating? Well, you know, if you look at violence, you can call it acting. Children act, particularly the younger children, but, but even the teenagers, of course. Uh, it's hard for them to talk sometimes. They act. Well, if they've been trained, and they really do get trained to misbehave, because they, they long for attention. Now, their other efforts are often not rewarded, either because they're futile in the way they express them or the futility is in the parent or provider that doesn't see it or doesn't respond to it. So they're looking for other ways to act. What do you think is going on? What's happening, yeah, with these kids? You know, the Prussian army method. You know, this is how schools have been all, all our lives. You, uh, somebody tells you something, you sit in your seat, you remember it, write it down, and you repeat it. The least creative you can be, the better you're graded. Tell me what I told you, tell it back to me, and that's it. These kids failed at that. So when they find a place that they can express that and see the joy, I mean, that's a circle, and I drew it, and then I put the eyes in, and, you know, that's something I did. Now, the other thing we, we gave permission, by the way, is to destroy whatever they create. If you don't like that picture, you can rip it up and nobody's going to say anything. You might get some encouragement, but it's your picture. And that's ownership. That's agency, which I'm assuming is just critical for building the 
trust, the courage needed for receiving feedback, for learning how to learn. So that form of expression and that support from the group, because we were very careful to allow productive criticism. And I and, and whoever's in class, I mean, I train people. You got to allow that, but it has to be done with respect. And so that became, you know, the R word we talked a lot about. Can you express that idea with respect? And again, all of this is practice, because if you're talking among people or talking in pairs, you know, sometimes they, they worked in pairs and ideas, what are you doing? You're relating. Why are they here? Because they are broken in their ability to relate and what they get out of relationships. In many ways, right at the core of a lot of the, this kind of work that I see happening is, and I'll, I'll just relate to the story of this podcast, which is that many of them came in with an external story is, this child is broken. The internal story is, I am broken. And in many ways, you availed them of an entire menu of opportunities to find agency with the crafting of a new story for themselves. Yes, and I think that's wonderfully said. And I'm going to go even more primary. Broken is okay. We're all broken. We're all broken. How we choose to deal with it and what access we have to tools to differ it define who we are. What I'm hearing is that the ultimate goal here was to help these kids heal and learn how to create and turn the pages of their own life stories. My experience is that most institutions aren't very good at seeing individual people, treating them as unique souls. How did creative culture help acknowledge and celebrate uh, each child's unique progress, their growth? Rites and rituals were important. We had assemblies, but they were very creative. But as rites of passage, a couple of things. When a child was graduating, quote unquote, which meant they were either going home or to a foster home, we had a really potent ceremony where kids actually were invited and chose to get up to the microphone and say, what I like about Aaron is this. And I remember the time that he got a candy bar and I didn't get one. And I asked if he'd share it, and he did share it. And he did, and I, I'm doing it, and he did share it, like it was a huge thing. The other thing we did is we had a wall called the People Puzzle, and it was acrylic material cut in, in, in uh, puzzle shapes. But each time there was kind of a graduating class, they took photographs, and it went behind the backing so that the puzzle pieces accumulated and grew and it I was also in that way trying to show that there's a continuity you're not the first kid that's came here the kids before you and they came with trouble and they succeeded and the graduates had a sense of I am leaving behind a legacy I thought that legacy was really important that what you do here contributes 
to to the kid who you know in the assembly. Uh, Bobby came uh, last week, and Aaron, you you've been here three years. Is there some advice you can give to Bobby who's just got her? And Aaron would get up there and give what was great advice and sweet advice and advice that Bobby could listen to because it wasn't bullshit. Now, the child Barry is referring to as Aaron here also shared what one might think of as advice or a philosophy through his art. During the short time I spent working with Families First, he shared a poem he had written in a workshop with Sacramento's poet laureate Tom Schmidt. After hearing it, I was inspired to share back by turning it into a kind of plain song chant. Here's what emerged. Darkness is a way of life when you can't find the way. Darkness is a way of life when you can't find the way. When you find the way, Darkness shatters like an old glass bottle when you find a way. Darkness shatters like an old glass bottle and a ticket falls out. A ticket to a lifetime of love. A ticket falls out. A ticket to a lifetime of love. Part four, what lessons? If you were going to talk to somebody who wanted to follow in a similar path, what things that you learned through your work at Families First would you impart to them? What, what lessons? Well, I, you know, everybody's creative. That's the point. I would start there without even bifurcating it. If you're a social worker and you don't write songs or draw pictures, Play with your own creativity. I mean, I wouldn't start anywhere but there. Where am I creative? Am I blocking my own creativity? And how about artists coming in? So an artist didn't walk in and get left behind in the process to figure out who are we, what are we, what do we do? Now, you don't break confidentiality. You don't give them the intake summary. That That's private and, and uh, confidential. But you can give them a real sense of what it is and where they are. And I think it's really important to, to also talk about what the vision of creative culture is so that they understand where they fit individually, collectively with their group and with the whole. And how, the uh, again, Dogmore is an example, the writers and the visual artists kind of work together so they, they get that kind of thing. And then, you know, the door needs to be open if they have questions or concerns. Do you think at some point if you had asked, and maybe you did, your your students, are you an artist? How would they have responded to that? Some of them would have said right away they were and told you bold and, uh, and adventurous stories of their art. Many of them would have said, no, I can't do that. But I guarantee you that by the time we were done, Almost everyone would say they were artists. Yeah. And did they sort of see the artists coming to work with them as, I don't know, senior colleagues? Yes. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Co-collaborators. I think 
Barry, co-collaborators is a good exclamation point for this conversation we've been having. Because the story you've shared here has been about how the power of us, of we, is so much more than the precious little light that shines from an isolated soul. Yeah. You know, during this pandemic, we've been reminded of the awesome, terrifying velocity of change in something like a virus. I would posit that when it is respectfully harnessed, the creative process has an even greater potential for momentous change. Right. And this is something you brought to bear in your creative partnerships with these incredible kids. So thank you. Thank you. You know, thank you very much for this opportunity. I've really enjoyed it. You are most welcome, my friend. And I'd like to add that links to Barry's continuing work, which also includes writing and an incredible body of photography, can be found in our show notes. Now I'd like to conclude with what I will call a cautionary postscript. As most of you know by now, our stories tend to lean in the direction of good outcomes and relatively happy endings. For Barry Marcus and the children and staff living and working at Families First, this was certainly the case. During the middle 1990s, the Families First reputation for effectiveness and innovation was well-established and well-earned. Unfortunately, Today, the facility's name in the Davis, California area or among child services professionals will elicit a very different response. That's because in 2009, well over a decade after Barry left his position there, families first began to struggle financially and ended up merging with a much larger network of group homes. To make ends meet, the new managers reduced staff and added girls to the mix of clients, sadly, over the next four years, Families First became a case study for both group home mismanagement and the systemic failings of state oversight. In its last six months of operation, the Davis Police Department was responding an average 100 times a month to patient crises and community complaints arising from the facility. According to a 2015 ProPublica report, its dramatic shuttering in 2013 and a subsequent investigation by the California Department of Social Services prompted the state to completely rethink how it cares for its most troubled children. If there is any silver lining to the tragic end of Families First's story, it's that it has resulted in the sweeping reform of California's child and family protection statutes and services, as well as a new Bureau of Children's Justice established in 2015 by then California Attorney General Kamala Harris. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you listeners for tuning in and please join us for our next story. Story, story, story. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. It's written and directed by Bill Cleveland. Our theme and soundscape are by Judy Munson. And if you're of a mind, please jump into the continuing conversation and check out our show notes at the Center's website at www.artandcommunity.com. Stay well and remember, a good intention is not good work.